Exodus chapter 5, verses 10 through 23, and this is called Gathering Stubble to Make Brick. And I want to let you know that I know we're a little behind today, we're a little uh, slow on getting things done, but uh, uh, today's sermon, sometimes I give a scale if I think it's a little difficult, you know, if it's a nine, I figure nobody's going to understand it, so you're going to have to go back and watch and read what we talked about. I'd say today is probably a six or a seven. It's a little more complicated than some of them. Uh, and I don't give the picture at the end with all of the information. I kind of give the information throughout the sermon. So uh, I hope that you will clue what's going on here because all of this points to the end times. It's the only reason why these particular verses are in there. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense to include some of them. But if you look at it from an end time scenario, it all becomes clear. So here we go. Exodus 5, verses 10 through 23, gathering stubble to make brick. And um, verse 10, And the taskmasters of the people and the officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourselves straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick, both yesterday and today as before? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, Make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, idle. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore now, go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble. After it was said, You shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Now you've heard the sermon verses read out loud. So now ask yourself, is Israel yet ready to be delivered from bondage? Why did God include these verses in this passage? Yes, it tells us what happened, but in relation to certainly many other things which surely happened during the same time frame, they're probably less important. Certain people have been mentioned in these verses, and yet they will never be mentioned again in the Bible. Certain words have been used, work, stubble, brick, and so on. Sometimes different Hebrew words are described the same way in English, and you wouldn't know this unless you looked at the Hebrew. We miss a lot in translations, not because translators do a crummy job, but because they aren't thinking about pictures of other things. They're thinking about the meaning of individual words. If I translate job, work, chore, and task into Japanese, I might use the same Japanese word simply because that's how I want to convey what I'm saying. However, my wife, who spent many years translating both Japanese into English and English into Japanese for various governments, might choose to be more specific, or maybe not. 
translators do what they can to provide the best meaning of something as they perceive it. In the case of Bible passages, there are often multiple words which are translated into one English word. Further, there are many individual words which are translated in many different ways, based on the context. But even context can be subjective. And because of this, there are a multitude of possible interpretations of individual passages. And so, as the King James Version translators noted in their original preface to the King James Version, they say a variety of translations is profitable for finding out the sense of scriptures. In other words, don't be captivated by one translation. As a matter of fact, there's this doctrine called King James Onlyism, where they believe that that's the only true Bible that you should read, and anybody else that reads anything else is going to hell, and they're all of the devil. Well, every one of those arguments is refuted in the original preface of the King James Version, as is this particular precept here. So, in other words, according to them, and according to just simply wanting to know the Word of God, study every translation that you can. Study the originals, if possible, and then study some more. Find yourself approved by searching out what God intends for you to see in his word. One way you can do that is to read acceptable commentaries. And I got to tell you, now, I mean, there are a lot of unacceptable commentaries out there, so you have to be careful. You have to say, I'm going to take this with a grain of salt until I've checked it out. Another way is to attend in-depth Bible studies without coming to presuppositions before you read the text and draw out of the text what's trying to be said. And a third way is to attend the superior word and to listen to sermons which probe the depths of whatever passage is being looked at. And then, after doing this, you go home and you check what you have been taught. Charlie Garrett may be completely wrong in his analysis of that particular verse or set of verses. Our text verse today comes from the 94th Psalm. It's the 12th verse. Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law. As we started a moment ago, I asked, is Israel yet ready to be delivered from bondage? And the answer is no, not yet. The Lord is waiting to deliver Israel. He's watching as they continue to work making brick. And what is even more important is that they are working to make brick with stubble. What is this picturing? Why did God include this in his word? Sit back and pay attention. If you doze off, please, no snoring. It's a little technical today. And we will continue to see Israel being prepared for deliverance from Egypt. In the future, Israel will be building a temple once again. At that time, they will be striving to please God by following the law. Are these two accounts connected? Thousands of years apart and yet connected? If so, how? The answer is to be found in God's superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is insufficient deeds, which is verses 10 through 14. Verse 10, and the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. The word went out from Pharaoh and those who received it have now in turn passed that word on to the laborers. What was said has been amended a bit though. In verse 7, Pharaoh said, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. However, the taskmasters and the officers equate the orders of Pharaoh to them as a direct statement to the people. I will not give you straw. In this, then, is a contrast to how Pharaoh handled the words of Moses and Aaron from our last sermon. If you remember that, 
He said they spoke false words when they quoted the word of the Lord. And so a distinction is being made between how the words of the Lord and how the words of Pharaoh are treated in this chapter. This is especially notable because the officers mentioned in this verse are Hebrews. They are not Egyptians. They have seen the Lord's word called false, and yet they ascribe weight and importance to the words of Pharaoh, which were spoken to them. Verse 11, go get yourself straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. The speakers continue to amend the words of Pharaoh, ascribing the words spoken to them as having been spoken directly to the people. Now, this might seem unimportant, but it's not. I take care of a little strip mall out on Siesta Key, and there's this homeless guy that sleeps behind the mall from time to time. He doesn't do anything wrong, and he keeps his eye on things. He's actually chased people off that were trying to steal stuff. So I don't bother the guy. However, if one of the owners said to me, you aren't allowed to let that guy sleep back there anymore, would it have more weight for me to say to this guy, the owners say you can't sleep here anymore, or I can't let you sleep here anymore? Obviously, the first carries the most weight. If Pharaoh has spoken directly to the people, then unless they want even more trouble, they will comply with the words of Pharaoh. Further, what will come about in the chapters ahead will have much more significance for them. In essence, the words of Pharaoh to the Hebrew people will be pitted against the words of the Lord, which the Hebrew people have already been made aware of. All right? In the short term, the situation is going to be trying. The people will question the ability of Jehovah to accomplish what he's spoken, and the people will suffer more. However, in the long run, the people will see the contrast between the two much more clearly. The same truth will be seen in the end times as well, when the word of the Lord, which is the published Holy Bible, will be pitted against the threats of the Antichrist. The people will be able to look back on its record, and they'll be able to match up with what their own eyes and experiences behold. And they will understand that the Lord is true to his word. Verse 12, so the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. The Hebrew here says, la koshesh kash lataben, literally to gather stubble for the straw. The word for straw is teben. It is something which is useful, and it's something which generally has a purpose, even for feeding animals, okay? Kosh, on the other hand, is something that is left behind, like stubble or chaff. As the reapers in the fields cut the grain, they would leave behind the stalks, and those are what would be gathered up and used for other things. In the place where grain was threshed and then it was winnowed, they would leave piles of the chaff that was separated from the grain. The chaff, or kosh, had no value at all. The Hebrews went anywhere to look for anything left over that they could use for the binding of the mud in the brick process. Without straw being provided, they were left to use whatever came their way, even what was considered worthless to the field workers. This shows desperation and a tiresome search, as the words throughout all of the land of Egypt imply. Not only did they have to make bricks, but they had to spend time traveling on foot looking for this stubble. They would have to bring it back, chop it up to the right size, and all of that to make these bricks. Then they would have to make the bricks at the full measure that they previously made. The next day, they'd get up and they'd start all over again. Verse 13, and the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. There's been a standard demanded in the past, and it is expected to continue regardless of the situation. 
The term daily quota comes from the Hebrew term yom beyomo, daily by day. It's an idiom implying that a set portion is for the given day and thus a quota. They are being asked to fill this quota, just as when there was straw provided, but now there is none. Instead, there is only kash, only stubble. This word kash is used 16 times in the Bible, and it is always, always used to indicate something worthless. It may be a person, it may be a thing, but it is as chaff which is swept away before the wind. An example of this is found in Isaiah chapter 33. It says this, Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. You shall conceive chaff, you shall bring forth stubble. That word kash. Your breath as fire shall devour you. The taskmasters are known as nogashim. We saw that last week. They would tirelessly drive the Hebrews on a good day. And so how much more when things weren't going well? As we will see, they were brutal in their attitude and in their actions, demanding what was expected at any cost. The word for work here, and this is important, it's the word ma'ase. It implies either a deed done or a thing made. It is a word used to describe the work of man as well as the accomplishments of God. In this verse here, it is speaking of human effort for its accomplishment. And so a contrast can be seen between the efforts of man in order to please Pharaoh, which is insufficient, and the work of God, which will destroy Pharaoh. The people have placed their works above reliance on Jehovah, and they are suffering because of it. However, they will also see the Lord prevail with their own eyes. If you can see what's being relayed, the Hebrews have been under the authority of Pharaoh, who pictures the Antichrist of the end times. He is a very harsh taskmaster. They have now been told that they would be delivered by the Lord, and at first they believed. However, their burdens have only increased, and their burdens have increased with kash, with stubble. What they are look, working with is useless and incapable of delivering them. The picture is that of the people of Israel. They have been in exile, 2,000 years, they've been in exile. They've been under the authority and under the influence of Satan. They have worked and accomplished deeds in their religious life. Deeds are always insufficient to save. But deeds are what Judaism is all about. Now in the end times, the Lord has called them back to the land and is preparing to deliver them from the authority and the bondage of the devil. But until they trust the Lord completely, and I'm speaking of the Lord Jesus, they will only suffer more. The temple will be rebuilt. Sacrifices will be made and the law will be reinstituted. Daniel chapter 9 shows us this specifically. It is coming and it's probably coming very soon. The deeds will increase as they conduct sacrifices and offerings in the rebuilt temple which is coming. But this will be ineffective to save them. They will be kosh. They will be stubble. We're given these stories to show us what has occurred, but what is yet to come as well. The Lord desires faith from his people concerning his provision. He desires trust that he is capable of saving. But until he receives it, the people will suffer more and yet his glory will be multiplied when their deliverance comes. All of this is pictured in the Bible. Verse 14, also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Now these officers are Hebrews. They're not Egyptians. 
They are those who were responsible for counting the daily tally of bricks and making the reports on labor practices. They are placed between the harsh taskmasters and their own people. Now they're facing the consequences of that tenuous position. The Egyptians are accusing them of not being responsible over the laborers. Thus, they are blaming them directly for missing the quota. The Hebrew here is much more expressive than our translations. It actually says yesterday, third, both yesterday and today. It's a way of saying in the past you did this, but now it's not happening. The officers are being accused of increasing negligence, which then results in their being beaten. The scholars, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, note this in their commentary. They say the mode of beating, now imagine this, the mode of beating was by the offender being laid flat on the ground and generally held by the hands and feet while the chastisement was administered. A picture representing the Hebrews on a brick field, exactly as described in this chapter, was found in an Egyptian tomb at Thebes. The beatings would have been unpleasant in the extreme and a source of even greater consternation for the laborers because the officers would not want to face that beating a second time. Thus, the burdens on the people would only increase yet again. This type of treatment by Hebrews against their own people is not unique. Something similar is found in the book of Nehemiah when the wealthier people exacted usury against the poor Hebrew people. This is found in Nehemiah 5. I'm going to read it. It's five, five verses long. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons, and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. They were, there were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and houses that we may buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been bought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. And it goes on, where the Hebrews were exacting usury against their own people and forcing them into these positions. Jesus notes the exact same treatment by the leaders of Israel as well. This is an ongoing theme. What we're evaluating here is the process of making brick. It's the same word, lavan, used in connection with the building of the Tower of Babel. In all, as a verb, this word lavan is used eight times in Scripture to indicate one of only two things, either making brick or, interestingly, purification of people. The three times it's used for brick are in the Tower of Babel and this account right here. The other five times are concerning purifying from sin and uncleanliness. Several times it's referring to the end times. And it's something that this account is actually picturing. So the Bible is very comprehensive in what it's showing us here. Here in Exodus, they are using stubble to make brick. And it isn't working. It is a picture of works-based salvation, which can never purify a person. They have not yet learned to trust the Lord. Remember, the rapture of the church has already been pictured back in chapter 3. This then is pointing to Israel after that point, or the end times. The officers are picturing the spiritual leaders of Israel who are under the authority of the Antichrist, pictured by Pharaoh. And this is going to become more evident in the verses ahead. What works can I do to build a tower to heaven? With what effort can I reach from here to God? My life is already tainted like bread filled with leaven, and in my walk it is an unholy path which I trod. Purge me from on high, and I will be pure. 
wash me with the blood of my Lord Jesus. Then I know that my eternal fate is sure. He has done such marvelous things for us. No longer will I work to earn my way to heaven. Through Christ I am purified, bread purged of its leaven. Our second thought today, servants of whom? Verses 15 through 19. Verse 15, then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, why are you dealing thus with your servants? Even though these officers are Hebrews, they had access to Pharaoh. Now this may sound a little bit less than believable, but according to the writings of the uh, ancient writer Herodotus, he says this, Egyptian monarchs were accessible to all. It was a part of their duty to hear complaints personally, and they, for the most part, devoted to this employment the early hours of each day. With this type of freedom to petition Pharaoh himself, they do just that, questioning why such strict and firm standards have been levied upon them. Remember, this is the Hebrews that are caught in the middle of all of this. The people have been given an impossible set of demands. The taskmasters have been given the authority to enforce the standards. And the Hebrew officers are stuck right between the two, beaten for something that they did not initiate and something they really have no control over. In their words, they identify themselves as servants of Pharaoh. Because of this, they want to know why he would treat them in this way. Their words imply that they have been obedient to their master, and yet they've been treated unfairly by him. This then is a picture of those Jewish leaders who have made an alliance with the Antichrist. And this is something that is certainly coming. They think that they will be safe from the troubles of the common people, but they will find out it is not so. All of this is picturing what is coming upon the people of Israel, just as Jesus warned in the Olivet Discourse, which is found in Matthew chapter 24. Verse 16, there is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. The words of this verse are obvious, and commentary is seemingly unnecessary, but I'm sorry, it is necessary. There are actually three ways of looking at it. The word own, as in your own people, is not in the original. The Hebrew says, vechatat amecha, and fault, your people. In this wording, it can mean that the officers are saying that the fault is in the Hebrews, right, who aren't doing their job, and so why are they being beaten? They have identified themselves as servants of Pharaoh, and so they're being beaten even though they are faithful to him, and so they feel that what has happened to them is not their own fault. There's a second option. That is that they are speaking of the taskmasters who are between them and Pharaoh, who have been beating them. There is no straw, and yet the same quotas are demanded. Because this is impossible, their beatings are unjustified, and the fault is in the taskmasters for beating Pharaoh's own servants. And there's a third option. It's that the Hebrew actually has an error in it. The scholars at Cambridge, which are liberal, by the way, uh, they say this, the text cannot be right. Not only is the Hebrew ungrammatical, but the fault was not in the people, but in the king. And so they note that by adding a single letter to the Hebrew, remember about adding to the word of God, but anyway, adding a single letter to the Hebrew, the text will read as several other manuscripts, like the Greek Old Testament, which basically says that Pharaoh is committing a wrong against his own subjects. I believe it's the first option, and then it's speaking of the Israelites. These scribes have identified themselves as servants of Pharaoh, okay? And therefore, they have placed themselves in contrast to the Hebrews under them. 
If they said the fault was in the taskmasters, it would imply that the fault was in Pharaoh because he gave the orders, and it's unlikely that they would chance this. The unusual wording is probably why the Greek translation was changed. They may have seen this difficulty and not wanted to leave open the option that the Hebrew people were somehow at fault. But I think that is what is being said. They are blaming their own Hebrew people in order to avoid punishment because they're stuck in the middle of everything. It's convenient to say that the Hebrew is wrong, but it is also unnecessary. What we are seeing is a picture of something else. Leaving the Hebrew alone, uh, alone does add allow for clarity. The word for brick here in this particular verse is the noun form of the verb that we just saw above. That was lavan. This word here is lavana. This word is used just 11 times in the Bible. Again, it is used in the erection of the Tower of Babel and in the Exodus story. The other times that it's used, it is always used in a negative connotation, which is dealing with the sinful workings of the people. In one, it specifically is speaking of buildings which have fallen down during the Lord's judgment. That's found in Isaiah 9. I want to read this to you. The bricks have fallen down. Those bricks, Lavana. But we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against them and spur his enemies on. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. Everything about these unique words shows us a contrast between faith in the Lord, which brings in a right relationship with him, and man's ineffective works, which put up a barrier between man and him. These Hebrew leaders are following the same sinful path in Exodus, and they pictured the sinful leaders of Israel's future. Verse 17, but he said, you are idle, idle. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Repeating and even doubling his comment from verse 8 about the Hebrews, Pharaoh proclaims that they are idle, and therefore they go desire to go and sacrifice to Jehovah. It is known in Egypt that idleness was considered one of the worst sins in all of their society. It was so much so that they would actually post epitaphs on their tombstones which disclaimed any idleness in their lives because it was believed by them that idleness was actually a reason for condemnation at the final judgment. For Pharaoh to use this term in the superlative way that he has by repeating it twice shows his utter disdain for both the Hebrews and for the God whom they serve. He is literally taunting them from his throne, challenging them to do anything about the decision that he has rendered. What he is doing is equating their religious desire with idleness rather than as complementary to it. But, and we've talked about this before, people who are diligent in proper religion are often, more often than not, diligent also in their work as well. This is particularly true with the worship of the true God, who fashioned man to be diligent in all of his affairs. Because of their familiarity with the notion of idleness being a damnable sin, he was challenging, challenging them even further, both in their eyes and in the eyes of the Egyptian people in general. He has truly proven himself to be a ruthless tyrant to the people of God. Verse 18, therefore go now and work for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. Curiously, this is a different word for work than the previous one of verse 13. There it was ma'ase, here it is abad. It is the same word that the officers used concerning themselves when they said they were Pharaoh's servants. 
It is also the same word that Moses was told to speak to Pharaoh way back in Exodus 4, verse 23, which said, So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. He is telling them to work in his service rather than work for or serve the Lord. Again, he is exalting himself above the Lord in his words to these officers. Verse 19, and the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble. After it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quotas. This is the fifth and the very last time that the term officers will be applied to these men who have been working for Pharaoh. They now perceive that there is no substantial difference between them and all of the other Hebrews in their eyes. If you see what's going on here, this is all very, very interesting because it's all picturing the end times. They also perceive that they are in trouble because of their standing. For any infractions, they will be held accountable. Their status and positions reckon them as Hebrew first and officers of Pharaoh secondly. And because of this, they will elevate their frustrations in a new direction. Lord, give us leaders who will be faithful to you. Keep us from one who would sell his own soul. We wish to follow you in all that we do. Keep us from those who are under the devil's control. May our lives be dedicated to you, pure and undefiled. Let our works be of faith, pleasing and right. In the past, you have upon us smiled. Let that be so now and forever acceptable in your sight. Hear and be attentive to our prayers to you. Be pleased with our lives, O God, in all that we do. Our third thought today is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is verses 20 through 23. Verse 20, then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. This is not a chance meeting, but one planned by Moses and Aaron. They'd already been told that Israel would not be allowed to go out to conduct a sacrifice to the Lord. They had also surely seen what additional conditions had been levied on the people and they would have known the treatment of the officers. If their hopes were that the officers would have met with more success than they had, nope. Their hopes were in vain. Deliverance may come, but it won't come from those who claimed to be servants of Pharaoh. And in fact, those supposed servants had only been rebuked in the process of petitioning him. Verse 21, and they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge. The irony of the words of these men, these officers, is palpable. To say, Yehovah alechem ve'yishpot, Yehovah look on you and judge, means that they are calling on Yehovah, Right? And yet it is Moses who had come from the Lord, who had declared to them the name of Jehovah and who had given proof of his commission by him. The very fact that they complained to Moses while complaining about the matter which was initiated by Jehovah implies that they have absolutely no confidence in the Lord at all. They are the words of those who pay lip service to him while ignoring the very words of the Lord that they pay lip service to. It is no different than people who very rarely or never step into a church in their entire life. And yet they love to quote, Jesus says not to judge. Whenever any Christian does anything that offends their sensibility, that's the first thing that comes off of their lips. And it's no different than those people right here. They heap insults upon God's people while all the time their actions show that they are servants of the devil. All we need to do is look around the world at any time in human history, and the land is filled with such troublemakers. They were there for Moses to contend with. They are there today in churches all over the world, and they will be there in the end times challenging the two witnesses who stand and accuse the world, prophesying the word of the Lord to closed minds into very hard hearts. 
Verse 21 continues, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. The Hebrew here says, you have made our smell to stink in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants. We use similar terms in English, but the Hebrew has much more force than our own idioms. There is an incongruity between smell and eyes, which gives the notion of the entire face welling up in disgust. It is as if the smell is so bad that the eyes actually start to run from it. And the smell they mention will permeate the entire house of Pharaoh because they include the term in the eyes of his servants. Suddenly, they're speaking of the servants of Pharaoh as if they are not included in that distinction, even though they just moments before made the claim that they were. The Hebrew people, including those Hebrews who had previously been distanced from them by an arm's length, are all lumped together into one basket. It is a pattern which is repeated time and time and time again throughout history, and it will occur in the end times. We see it all over the world today. We've got Jews up in uh, you know, New York at the uh, New York Times, and they post about how bad Israel is, and they try to distance themselves from their own people. But ultimately, they will be lumped in with all of the other Jews. Liberal Jews all over the world saying, oh, Israel doesn't have any right to exist, and this and that. You see, this is exactly what's happening here, and these people are going to find out that they bear the same skin as their brothers that they've been trying to distance themselves from. Verse 21 continues, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Well, the meaning is obvious. They are accusing Moses of bringing them to the point of destruction because he has meddled in their affairs. They were safe, they were secure, and suddenly they're facing the same calamity of all of the people that it, they had previously faced. Because they are Hebrews, they are identified with the Hebrews. They cannot change who they are any more than a leopard can change his own spots. Esther was informed of exactly this when Mordecai spoke to her about their impending doom. Here's his words to her. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jew, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so, in realizing their plight, they heap reproaches on the Lord's designee over them. Jesus faced this as well, and they nailed him to a cross. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen spoke to the leaders of Israel numerous times of such instances in their history, constantly following the same disobedient pattern. Go back to Jesus for a second. What did they say when they, they wanted Barabbas? They said, we follow Caesar. Let his blood be on us and on our children forever. They're distancing themselves from their own Hebrew brother, and they couldn't because they were the ones that were punished in the end. It's always following the same pattern. Moses received no gratitude at this time, none. But Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown notes this. As the greatest darkness is immediately before the dawn, so the people of God are often plunged into the deepest affliction when on the eve of their deliverance. And so it was in this case. Verse 22, so Moses returned to the Lord. It's unknown what these words mean here. There's no explanation of them, and there is no hint to offer expanded guesswork. And so all we can do is just speculate. Later, we find out that the Lord spoke to him in Egypt. He didn't return to the Lord at Horeb, so we don't know what it means. Did he have a spot picked out to meet the Lord? Or did he simply prostrate himself because of his troubled heart? Whatever the case is, the old adage, a praying heart 
never lacks a praying place, rings true. The Lord is there for his people, and their petitions do not go unheard. And so Moses returned to the Lord. Verse 22 goes on and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? Some scholars find these words impetuous. Others might say that he's lacking faith or irreverent. Augustine took a completely different stand and said that these are not words of contumacy or indignation, but of inquiry and prayer. But there's more than this. I'm certain of it. There is a heartfelt desire being spoken of by Moses here to know the depths of the wisdom of God concerning a matter which involves a seeming hand of discipline when it appears that it should have been a hand of comfort. This type of comment to the Lord is not at all uncommon in the Bible. It's found in the books of the law. It's found in the books of wisdom. It's found in the prophets. And it's even found in the New Testament. In Psalm 74, and from the hand of Asaph, we read this. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed. Rather than simply saying that the Lord had brought trouble on the people, in a much more literal sense, Moses' question to the Lord asks why he has afflicted the people with evil. He's already been told twice that he should expect Pharaoh to not respond favorably towards his petitions. But what he did not expect was that there would be evil consequences towards Israel in the process. Just like the psalmist, he wanted to understand the process and not just the outcome. But this tells us that there is more involved than just the story of Moses delivering Israel from Egypt. If it were only that, the Lord would have surely told him that things would have gotten worse before they got better. It would have solved all of these problems. We wouldn't have any of these verses here. Or he would have surely just kept them from having any harm come upon them while he accomplished his work. But neither of those things has occurred. And because of this, we can know that what is recorded here is an appeal for faith at all times, as well as being a picture of the end times. Job understood this as he pronounced his great affirmation of faith, that God is sovereign and that he would serve him through both blessing and through adversity. And the Bible is asking us to follow in that exact same path. If the world spirals out of control before the rapture of the church, we are to hold fast to the sure promises of God despite those troubles. And Israel will be asked to do exactly the same thing all the way through the tribulation as well. We're asked to have faith and to be faithful even when we don't understand the troubles which seem to come from the hand of the Lord himself. Verse 23, our last verse. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Moses expected deliverance, but he did not expect Pharaoh's evil treatment of the people in the process. And these words clarify what he said in the previous verse when he asked, why have you brought trouble on this people? The evil was actively brought on by Pharaoh, but it was passively allowed by the Lord. The Lord is never the cause of evil. And if he does cause something which we perceive as evil, then we have misperceived what has happened. Moses understood this, and so his questions are very probing, and they're very specific. In Hebrew, his words are, Vehatzel lo hizalta, and delivering, no delivered. The words indicate that what was started is left uncompleted, despite the evil which Pharaoh has brought on Israel. Rather than an abundance of accusations and a snippy attitude, his words are frank, and they're filled with perplexed curiosity. 
And this is the way that we should conduct ourselves when we speak to the Lord about those things which trouble us. We can't hide the obvious, and so there's no point in ignoring it. And yet, we lack the full picture. And so there's no point in being wordy or demanding of the Lord. In what is a very good parallel thought to complement how Moses has addressed the issues to the Lord, which are in his heart, we can look to the words of Solomon from the book of Ecclesiastes. Think of Moses and think of how we should act. Do not be rash with your mouth and let your heart uh, do and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The verses today are filled with hints of other things. They picture what is coming in the future and they show us once again that God is not pleased with human effort in an attempt to be reconciled to him. The leaders of Israel will find this out someday. If the Lord told Moses in advance what was coming, or if these things didn't happen, then the specific words which have been used would not have been included in this account. Work, stubble, officer, brick, and so on. All of these have been used in specific ways to show us not just a story of the past, but a story of what is coming in the future. Moses did not understand because his life and his circumstances were being used to show us that future. And these things are starting to come to pass unbelievably in our own lives. Israel must learn that instead of working deeds of the law, that it is faith in the Lord that brings harmony and reconciliation between God and man. Anything else, no matter how seemingly good to human eyes, is mere stubble. No matter how much stubble we find, it will never be sufficient to make enough bricks to get back to heaven. It will never happen. Let us turn away from pleasing the devil in our attempts to please God. Instead, let us please God through the work of his son, which was given for that very purpose. If you've never understood why you need Jesus and you'd like to call out to him to save you today, give me just one more moment to explain to you how to do just that. All you need to do is ask Jesus, I'm tired of trying to work to please you and I know that I can't do it. I know that it's impossible and I know that you sent your son Jesus to live that perfect life that I have failed to live. And so I receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I ask him to cover my sins and to wash them away, cast them as far as it is from east to west. And I will trust in that. I call on Jesus as Lord. If you do that, if you do that simple thing, you will be saved. That's all that God asks is faith instead of trying to work because what happens when you work? It says, I can do it. It's a form of self-idolatry. God says, no, you can't. And you keep doing it. And you keep butting your head against a wall because you can never satisfy God with what you are doing. Only his son can do it. That's the entire premise of the Bible from the very first pages all the way to the very last page of the Bible. The premise is Jesus Christ. God loves us enough to send his son into the stream of humanity to take care of what we cannot take care of. So trust in him. Our closing verse today comes from Romans chapter 4. It's verses 5 through 8. To him who does not work, but believes on him, meaning Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now remember, David was under the law, and he says these words implying he knew that the law couldn't save him. He said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not, not impute sin. Even David understood this, and he didn't even know that Christ 
you know, the, the, that he would come to die for him. But he understood that the law was insufficient. Next week, Exodus 6, 1 through 13, I will rescue and redeem. That's our 16th Exodus sermon. We're moving along. We're going to see Israel delivered some great time. And in the meantime, we're going to see some plagues, interesting stuff. I mean, I'm just, I'm loving Taipanese nine weeks ahead of you, so I know what's coming. And it's just every week, it's just excitement galore. I'll tell you this uh, before we close. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. So even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, you need to understand that he can part those waters and he can lead you through them on dry ground. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called Gathering Stubble to Make Brick. Now think of all the pictures we've been looking at. Okay? Try to solidify in your mind that it's not about works and that stubble can't do anything. All of those intricate words and sometimes two words which are actually from two separate Hebrew words translated into one. Work, ma'ase, and abad. Keep thinking of that as I'm reading you our poem. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people they saw, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go, get yourself straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced, not a little bit. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all of Egypt, the land, to gather stubble instead of straw with whatever they could fill their hand. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw, the full tally, and make sure it's not less, even one iota. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had over them set, were beaten and were asked to tell why at the end of the day things weren't accomplished yet. Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? This is the question we ask. Why can't you even up the daily score? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out in a fuss to Pharaoh, saying to him then, Why are you dealing with your servants thus? There is no straw given to your servants. And to us, make brick, they say. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. This we convey. But he said, you are idle, idle, this his word. Therefore, to me, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord so that from your work you can get away. Therefore, go now and work for no straw shall be given you. Yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. This is what I order and what you shall do. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble more than an iota after it was said to them what Pharaoh did tell you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron in the way, who stood there to meet them to see what occurred with them that day. And they said to them, without just warrant, let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh. To us he bears a grudge. And in the sight of his servants, it's a bitter pill to put a sword in their hand and order us to kill. So Moses returned to the Lord and said in a manner, speaking frankly, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to, he has to evil to this people done. Neither have you delivered your people at all. They are still dwelling here under Egypt's sun. God is patiently waiting to deliver Israel. He has a plan and it will come about as it should. This is a truth which the Bible does tell. In the end, all that the Lord does is good. God allows us to make brick if we choose, and even brick with crummy stubble. 
and he lets us direct the path of our own shoes, even if it gets us in a bit of trouble. But the good news is Christ, whom he has sent. In him there is freedom from all trials, and with him our eternity will be spent. When we call out to him, our future is guaranteed smiles. Praise you, O God, for our precious Lord Jesus, who has certainly done all things wondrously for us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, it is wonderful to know that we don't have to work in order to find our rest, that our rest is waiting right at the cross of Calvary. Lord, we here just look to that cross and we stand in astonishment that you would do this for us. Here we are so far away from you and yet you've drawn us near through his precious blood. What a great God, what a wonderful creator you are. And Lord, you know that this building is dedicated to the honoring and sanctifying of your word. And so help us to pursue that, to never let anybody come into this building and diminish the contents, which are so precious and so pure, your word. What a treasure it is. What a gift it is from you. We thank you for it. We ask that you help our hearts to be receptive to it and to understand it more and more each day. And I would pray that each person here would have just a zeal each morning when they rise, each evening when they go to bed, and any time during the day to pick up your word and to just look at it and to cherish it and to know that it is your love letter to us. Lord, you know that Hugh is looking for a home right now in Jacksonville unless he can find a job here. And so wherever you have him in the days ahead, we would pray for him, that you would help him to find that job or here in Sarasota, preferably, so we can continue to fellowship with him or to move to Jacksonville and be closer to his family and be able to uh, take care of his needs with his uh, physical disabilities that he suffers with. We do pray for him. We thank you for this congregation. Each person here is precious and dear. We thank you that we can hug each other, that we can give each other a holy kiss, as your word says, and to uh, fellowship with each other, to enjoy some time together before and after church, and uh, to uh, think of the goodness of your word throughout the week that we have shared with each other. What a great God you are. How wonderful it is to be in your presence. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord, the gift, the gift of God. Thank you for him. We praise you in his name. Amen. Paul gives us the instruction for the Lord's Supper. comes right out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he wrote this for us. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have blessed this by giving this blessing. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed it as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam, Borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This too as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, 
not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He's getting ready to sit down. We actually do have people that attend with us. Last week I forgot to turn off the uh, streaming online and I got an email later, maybe thinking I had a phone that could uh, get this. It says, um, you forgot to turn off the streaming online. Mm -hmm. And so eventually, a couple minutes later, I saw it was on and I turned it off, but we love you. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for all that come to the Lord's table and and participate in what we proclaim week by week. Thank you for the death of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us of our sin and the work that he did, which leads us back to you. Thank you for that. Thank you for the prospects of the week ahead. We don't know what's coming, but each moment will unfold just as it should. And we've placed our futures into your capable hands, knowing that you will have it come out just properly. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.